You're listening to audio from One Church of High Point. If you'd like more resources or would like to donate, visit onechurchnc.net. If you were with us last week, you know we started a new series called Seek, Serve, and Send. And uh, Pastor Ryan opened us up with this conversation about unity. Uh, He talked to us about uh, a, a passage in John 17 that's traditionally called the Great Collaboration. And uh, in John 17, there are these two henna clauses. A, a henna clause is a, a if-then clause. If, if one thing happens, then there's something else that's guaranteed to happen. And what I love about that passage and his teaching from last week, it says if we become one, two things are going to happen. One, the world will know that Jesus is who he said he is. Oh, that's good. And then the second guarantee is the world will know that they're loved by the Father. And so think about it. If, if those two things happen, that is our greatest apologetic, that if, if we become one, the world will know Jesus is who he said he is, and the world will know that they're loved by the Father. And those things are extremely important. But as we move into our topic for today, I've found that sometimes this conversation gets hijacked by uh, people's agendas and sometimes politics. And so you may be wondering, like, what does it mean to be a multi-ethnic church? What, what does it mean to pursue uh, multi-ethnic ministry? And that's part of what I want to unpack today, uh, not only with sound theology, but also sound uh, ecclesiology. And we have this value of what's called unity in diversity. And so some of you in the room, maybe you're wondering, like, like why do we have that value? Uh, you may be wondering, like, why aren't there more multi-ethnic churches uh, like ours? Or, or maybe you're someone that you've, you've been a part of one church, and uh, it, it's, it's been tough in seasons, and maybe uh, you just need to be encouraged to say, uh, don't grow weary in your well-doing. But regardless where you stand in that spectrum, I want you to know that this, this message is here to encourage all of us. Somebody shout, all. Because guess what? I need Jesus, you need Jesus, we all need Jesus. Amen? Amen? Amen. But let me start with this story. So there's this guy, he was about to go vacationing with his wife, and it had been a tough season for them. They needed to get away. And so they chose uh, the Caribbean uh, islands, and they, they decided they were going to go. And, and he went ahead of her because she had some work stuff she had to take care of. So he goes down ahead of her. He's kind of rushing to, to kind of get settled in, and he, he texts her. Um, that he's, you know, he made it, right? Um, But what he didn't realize in his haste, he doesn't text his wife. He ends up texting an 80-year-old woman, an 80-year-old woman who had just lost her husband. And when she got that text, family were around, and she began to smile. And the family was like, what is she reading? Like, who's texting her? Because we haven't seen that smile since Papa left. Like, what, what's going on? And she, she begins to smile, and then she keeps reading, and she passes out, and she hits the floor. And the family rushes in, like, what's going on with me, Mom? What's going on with Mommy? And they grab this phone, and they begin to read what the message says. The first two things said, I made it here safely. Come on, somebody say, aw. Second thing it said was, I miss you already. But then the third thing is what caused her to hit the floor. It said, it's hot down here. (laughs) 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 That that widow 
that widow was expecting this to be the last words, these words from her deceased husband. And, and what I would suggest to you, like last words, last words are important. If, if you only have five minutes with the people who are most important in your life, only have five minutes, like what would you say? Like, like you would want those words to matter. You, you'd want those words to be meaningful. You would want those words to echo in their hearts and in their minds long after you left them. But what I want you to understand is, is Jesus also had some last words. Like, as a matter of fact, as Pastor Ryan was preaching last week, he talked to us about this, one of the last prayers that Jesus prays before he goes to the cross. Now, I love the fact that, that Jesus goes to the cross. He, he dies on that rugged cross. The Bible says that they took him down from the cross. They put him in a, a borrowed tomb, but I'm so glad he didn't stay there. The Bible says he got up. <laughs> he got up with all power in his hands, and, 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 and it didn't stop there, but the Bible says that he, he showed himself to be alive. He showed himself to be alive to his disciples, and, and that is when we begin to hear some of Jesus's last words. We hear about him in the Gospels. We hear about him in the book of Acts, and so I, I, there are a lot of last words we could give you, words like Mark 16, 15, when he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all. Somebody shout all to all creation. The last time I, I checked, all still means all. all. <laughs> or, or maybe Acts 1.8 when it says, but you will receive power. Somebody shout power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and uh, in Jerusalem and to the very ends of the earth. But if I had to choose one, if I had to choose one of those last words, it would be something we call the Great Commission. Right, we talked about the great collaboration last week. We're going to talk about the great commission this week. This is found in Matthew uh, chapter 28, the last chapter. Turn there if you don't mind. We're going to start around verse 18. And it says, then, somebody shout then. then. Jesus came to them and said, all, somebody shout all. All. <laughs> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, somebody shout go, go. and make disciples of all nations. Somebody shout all baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so I want to talk to you from the thought or from the subject, last, last words. Let's pray. Father, we know the flower fades, the grass withers, but your word stands forever. Speak into this moment, move me in the background, may you be at the forefront. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Speak now, give us the courage to respond in obedience. We pray this all in the matchless name of Jesus. Everybody shout amen. amen. Go and make disciples of all nations. In the Greek, that word ethnos means nations, all nations. Nations. These were Jesus's last words. Not mine, not, not Pastor Ryan's, but literally some of Jesus's last words. In this brief passage, Ed Stetzer, who's an author and missiologist, he, he says there's four things worth mentioning about some of Jesus's last words that I think we should talk about today. And remember, it, one is we are to live sent. 
but we're not just live sent, but we're to live sent to different groups of people. Uh, we're sent to different groups of people with a clear mission and message. And then we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. Think about that. We, we are to live sent. Somebody shout sent. sent. To different groups of people. Somebody shout different. But we have a very clear message and mission. Somebody shout clear. But we can't forget, you can't do this on your own. you got to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Somebody shout empowered. empowered. So if these were Jesus' last words, if these were some of the last things he said to his disciples, you would think that they would be pretty important. Why, why did the church in Jerusalem at the beginning pretty much stay there? If we had to live sent to different groups of people, clear mission and message, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Why? Why did the early church mostly stay in Jerusalem? Um, something happened, and I may get in trouble because uh, part of this story, the people involved are in the room. So y'all pray for me. Come on, say amen. But baby, if you bring me that um, bag it, right there. So uh, we had this moment. It, it was it was uh, Christmas time, and we were over at my in-laws' house, and we were having a great time. It was, it was a blessing. Matter of fact, they're in the room. Can y'all wave? My in-laws are in the room. Yeah, we thank, thank you. We're over there having a good time, and it's, it's, a, it's such a blessing. And We're exchanging gifts, and my wife, she loves practical gifts, right? So I think she knows what's in the box, right, before I do. And so I'm ripping into the box. She's ripping into the box. And y'all, when I open the box, I, I see a word that I'll never forget. It says, Snuggie. Yeah. Y'all ain't saying amen. I, it, it, it says Snuggie. And, and you know, I'm a 235-pound manly man, and, and there's something about the word Snuggie that just doesn't fit me. It just doesn't fit me. And so, you know, you do what you're supposed to. You thank them. You know, God bless you. Thank you so much. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? And so, you know, I, I, I take that little box, you know, I, I take it to my house and Nicole puts it in our, in our closet. I take mine and I take it to the garage and I put it up on that top shelf. Y'all ain't seen it, man. That shelf that nobody goes to unless, unless you move it. And I'm thinking, I have no use for this Snuggie. Until it's one late evening, and I'm downstairs watching the game, and the kids have taken all the, the, the blankets upstairs, and like this is draft on my toes, and I'm like, where? And I remembered Snuggy. Oh, I go up in that garage, I tiptoe on the ladder, I slide that thing up off the top shelf, and y'all, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's nothing but a robe turned backwards. That's all it is. That's all it is. That's all it is. And so I'm sitting there on the couch, y'all, and, you know, it's got pockets in the front. Y'all ain't saying amen. I'm sliding in my snacks and my drinks. I mean, I am so comfortable. And I begin to be thankful for something that I was given that I didn't fully appreciate initially. And what I've come to understand is that sometimes as believers, our expectation is our walk with Jesus is supposed to be like that Snuggie. 
Are you with me? Like comfortable. I mean, we think that it's supposed to be convenient. And, and what I found is that, that sometimes the issue in the early church was comfort and convenience, but I think it was also potentially a little bit of confusion. Like they didn't, they didn't fully know who this message was for. And they needed clarity. And, and so I love the fact that God, when we, when we sometimes find ourselves so comfortable in, in trying to operate with convenience, that God will give us clarity about what our real mission is and what we're really supposed to be doing. I love the way Will Mancini says this. He says, we are often kept from our goals, not always because of obstacles, but because of a clearer path to a lesser goal. Let me say that again, because that's good. We are often kept from our goals, not always because of obstacles, but because sometimes we have a clearer path to a lesser, a lesser goal. Is there a lesser goal in the way of what God wants to do in you? Is there a lesser goal getting the way of what God wants to do through you? Or maybe what God wants to do through us? For some churches, the lesser goal is bigger buildings, bigger budgets, and more butts and seats. Come on, say amen. For others, it's attractional worship, fog machines, and uh, a charismatic preacher, and all the creature comforts of consumerism on a Sunday morning. And sometimes silently, if we're not careful, we say, don't challenge me. Don't, don't push me to grow. Don't ask me to step up. Don't, don't ask me to serve, and definitely don't ask me to sacrifice anything. And, and sometimes what we're saying is maybe, maybe not with our words, but sometimes with our actions, leave me alone. That's what the pastors are for. That's what the professionals are for. But, but I thought the goal of the local church was, uh, and its leaders was to equip God's people for the work of the ministry. I thought we served a water walker. I, I, I thought we served someone who has now given all power, has been given into his hands, one who took the sting out of death and victory out of the grave. Now, do you think Jesus went through all of that for us to be comfortable? I think he wants us to disrupt a false sense of peace and remind us of the mission, his mission, which is now become ours, which is to seek the lost, to serve our community, and to send disciples to transform the world. Now, in case you need more proof, right, in case you need more proof of why we have this emphasis on unity and diversity, let me give you a little more theological insight and how this value shows up in the New Testament. One of my good friends, uh, Mark Demas, he's written multiple books. One of them is called Leading a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church. Some of you have been through uh, a book study we do here at, at um, one church called Multi-Ethnic Conversations. But he says this, it says this, um, that Jesus envisioned the multi-ethnic church for the sake of the gospel on the night before he went to the cross. We talked about that last week, right? We also understand that Luke described the multi-ethnic church in action at Antioch as a model for future congregations to follow. That's what we're dealing with today. And then we also find that Paul prescribed the multi-ethnic church in order to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people. So Jesus envisioned it, um, Luke describes it, and Paul prescribes it. Now, um, how many of y'all have ever gotten a new car? Maybe it wasn't brand new, but it was new to you. Come on, say amen. Like, like when you get a new car, you start to notice all of the other cars like yours 
when you get that new car. You know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like how many people got a Toyota Avalon, right? Because I got one, right? Like, what you find, though, because this, is, this conversation we're having today is so much at the heart of God that when you begin to see it in the, in the Scriptures today, you'll find that it shows up everywhere. Like, you don't have to work hard to find this in Scripture. It's everywhere. And so if you ever get distracted, which sometimes people do in this conversation, or if you ever get detoured, I want you to remember this is simply about two things. It's about reconciling people to God and reconciling people to people. Let me say that again. It's really about two things, reconciling people to God and reconciling people to people. But you may be wondering, like, why is this such a hang-up for so many people? Well, I want to show you this video. We're just going to show the first minute in a, in a few seconds, and I encourage you to check out the, the full-length video. It's about eight minutes at your leisure. It's called The Backwards Bicycle. Just Google Backwards Bicycle on YouTube, and you'll find this. But this video sets up where I'm going with the rest of the message. Check this out. Hey, it's me, Destin. Welcome back to Smarter Every Day. You've heard people say it's just like riding a bike, meaning it's really easy and you can't forget how to do it, right? But I did something. I did something that damaged my mind. It happened on the streets of Amsterdam, and, and I got really scared, honestly. I, I can't ride a bike like you can anymore. Before I show you the video of what happened, I, I need to tell you the backstory. Like many six-year-olds with a MacGyver mullet, I learned how to ride a bike when I was really young. I had learned a life skill, and I was really proud of it. Everything changed, though, when my friend Barney called me 25 years later. Where I work, the welders are geniuses, and they like to play jokes on the engineers. He had a challenge for me. He had built a special bicycle and he wanted me to try to ride it. He had only changed one thing. When you turn the handlebar to the left, the wheel goes to the right. When you turn it to the right, the wheel goes to the left. I thought this would be easy, so I hopped on the bike ready to demonstrate how quickly I could conquer this. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Destin Salem. First attempt riding the bicycle. I couldn't do it. You can see that I'm laughing, but I'm actually really frustrated. In this moment, I had a really deep revelation. My thinking was in a rut. This bike revealed a very deep truth to me. I had the knowledge of how to operate the bike, but I did not have the understanding. Therefore, knowledge is not understanding. Look, I know. Uh, we see here that Destin has the knowledge of how to ride the bike, but he doesn't quite have the understanding. Knowledge does not always equal understanding. What if that's not just true of riding altered bikes? What if that's also potentially true of people who are trying to seek out unity and diversity. Now, I say this partially because if you're struggling with this, our goal, is not, our goal is not to shame you, but to tell you that actually you are not alone. Our biggest challenge in this work is not really bigotry and overt racism. It is the silence of good and well-meaning people. Peter was there to hear this great commission that we talked about earlier uh, from Jesus' lips himself, but yet he struggles in Acts 10 because of his own cultural bias, uh, because he has this bias to Gentiles, and he doesn't know how to live it out. And so God brings him to a place where he has to go to Cornelius' house, uh, a person, a soldier who is a part of the Roman government, and, and he has to go through the process of, of baptizing Cornelius in his home. 
This is hard stuff. It was hard for the early disciples. It's going to be hard for us. It's why we need the Holy Spirit's help. But once Peter got it, it changed his lens. Somebody shout lens. Y'all remember that illustration from Pastor Ryan last week? It changed his lens. One shift can change how you see everything. Um, how many of you, um, anybody in here like to ride motorcycles? Any motorcycle bikers? Not very many of you. But how many of you know how to drive a stick, a stick shift? Anybody know how to drive? Okay, there are more people. So what you know about a stick shift is that you have to change the gears at certain points uh, when the, the RPMs or the motor uh, gets a little louder, right? It's a signal. It's time to change gears. Now, you can ride from Greensboro to L.A. in first gear if you want to. <laughs> Come on, say amen. Like, if you want to. Like, you might get there, but, but by the time you get there, it's going to take you a whole lot longer. You're going to mess up your transmission and your engine. Like, the, the gears are in the clutch, and it, it's, it's made so that when you get to a certain uh, 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 amount of speed and the RPMs raise, it's time to shift. Now, what, what I want you to know is that two, 2020 and COVID really helped us understand some things that we already knew. It just helped us to see it differently. And the reality is that it's time to shift. I believe God has put one church in this city for such a time as this to help move into a place to help the community understand it's time to shift. Like, like a lot of people don't want to learn how to drive a stick shift. You know, like I'll just drive my automatic car. Some of y'all saying I'm going to get there with my automatic. And yes, you will. <laughs> yes, you will. But here's the thing. It limits your ability to drive all vehicles. You can't drive everything. And if you're some parts of the world, like, stick shift is all you got, <laughs> right? Because they're cheaper to make. And the reality is God does not want us to put limits on what he's doing. God wants us to be able to have the full expression. He wants us to reach everybody. And so that's why I want to lead to my first point. Shift number one is this, from knowledge to a deeper level of understanding. Now, it's not enough to know this stuff. Knowledge does not equal understanding. Now, what you got to understand about the rest of this video, I hate to spoil it for some of you, but, but Destin, he tested this on other people from all over the world, and he got the same result. Everybody found it impossible to simply ride the bike 10 feet. He offered them hundreds of dollars. Nobody could do it because it wasn't about great balance. It wasn't about hand and eye coordination because this thing was completely counterintuitive. Destin actually practiced this with this bicycle five minutes every day in his driveway. Guess, guess how long it took him to figure out how to ride this bike. Eight months. Eight long months. It required a paradigm shift. Somebody shout shift. That can only come with personal persistence and practice. Somebody's going to get that. It required a paradigm shift that could only come with personal persistence and practice. And so what we're doing as a part of One Church, it requires personal persistence. It requires practice. It requires the help of the Holy Spirit. Once we have a rigid or fixed way of thinking, he helps us to understand that it's hard to change. It's not impossible, but it's hard to change even, even when we really want to. 
I used to think that people who don't engage these issues or, or people who resist or maybe uh, people who uh, uh, step away from this do so because of a lack of knowledge or lack of effort or lack of desire. But, but this video helps to remind me that, that, that I need to be more patient, that, that I need to extend grace because uh, all of this, although that's true for some people, it's not always true for everyone. Like some shifts, some change takes time. Like, just like Destin, as we move towards God and as we move towards each other, God gives us the ability to do what we can't do on our own. This is not about magic. This is about movement. And in order to ride this kind of bike that one church is, you got to move. Come on, say amen. You can't ride this bike standing Still, practicing unity and diversity is completely countercultural. It's not natural. It's supernatural. It's not ordinary. It's extraordinary. Come on, say amen. So that leads to the second shift. Shift number two is from this being a diversity issue to an issue of discipleship and multiplication. So when someone asks, isn't the gospel enough? My answer is always, absolutely, yes. But then my question becomes, like, what gospel are we talking about? Like, are we talking about the not-so-great commission? Like, where you reach out to people who look like you and live like you, who vote like you, who think like you? Or are you talking about something different? Because, see, if we're talking about that kind of gospel that, that focuses on comfort and control and consumerism and not sacrifice and serving, then no, that gospel, that gospel is never enough. But Jesus is clear in this great commission. He's clear in the great collaboration. And he's clear in something we're going to end with, the great commandment, that this is a discipleship issue. If it were just a diversity issue, then that means it would be optional. But it's not a diversity issue. It's a discipleship issue. Somebody shout, discipleship. And we, we don't have this value because of changing demographics or because it's politically correct. We do so because it is the hope of the gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. Now, that's a good place for amen right there. Amen. It is not something we manufacture, but it is something that the Holy Spirit grows in us as we pursue this day by day, something we call sanctification. Now, I've been cutting my own hair since I was in middle school. And um, I had this moment where I was getting ready to go play basketball. I, I was a three-sport athlete in high school, football, basketball, and baseball. And so I'm getting ready for the game. Y'all, you know, you got to have a cut. You know, you got to have a nice cut for the game. Let the brother say amen. And so, you know, I had already faded it up, you know, and I got the last thing you're supposed to do, which is that line. You know what I'm saying? You got to get that line right because if that line ain't right, everything is messed up. So I'm getting my line right, and I've moved from the line to the part. You know what I'm saying? And back then, like this was, this was like late 80s going into the 90s, and there was this guy named Big Daddy Kane. Y'all ain't, y'all ain't saying amen. Y'all remember Big Daddy Kane? Ain't no half stepping. Y'all, y'all don't know about the juice crew. Y'all don't know about that. Y'all don't know about like the young people in the room that just went over their heads. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. Check it out. Check it out. So I'm putting my last part in my head to look like Big Daddy Kane. And my mama walks in the room and calls my name. And I got the mirror, and I'm doing this, and she says, Santis! (laughs) 
and there's a patch of hair in my hand. And, and, and so it's game day. I did what any wise, innovative high schooler would do. I got me a black permanent marker. Y'all ain't saying amen. And I started <laughs> filling in the gaps. And everything was fine. I mean, everything was going good until, you know, it's halfway through the game. And I'm at the free throw line because I just got fouled doing a layup. Y'all ain't saying it, man. I got fouled doing a layup. I'm at the free throw line. I hit the first one. And the guy's on the line looking at me like. I'm like, what y'all looking at? I got fouled. I got fouled. And I wipe my brow, y'all. And there's purple and black all on my hand. Why did I tell you that story? This is not something you can fake. What I will tell you, it took a week and a half for that hair to grow back. And I could try to use something else, something artificial, to make it look like it was right. But I knew it wasn't right. And everybody that was at the game knew it wasn't right. And so guess what I did? I didn't pick up that magic marker anymore. I just went with it. Come on, say amen. I got a gash in my head. There's no need faking it. It's gone. It's going to grow back later. When it grow back, I'll be fine. But sometimes what we happen, we like to fake it till we make it. No, not with this. You can't fake this till you make this. You just got to live it. Come on, say somebody, live it. You got to live it. You got to live it. And it's hard. It's tough. So let's get back to this text. This challenge also came up with the early church, and it reminds us that we are not the first followers of Jesus to try to scale this wall. There was the early church in Jerusalem, but there was also a church in Antioch. And what we found is that there are two churches with kind of two different histories. There's two different churches with like two different area of focus. Uh, both of them have their place in history, but one focused primarily on one group of people, while the other seemed to have this focus on the nations. So, so how many of you have, have uh, you like watching ESPN? Like you watch ESPN and you know they have the top 10, you know the top 10? Like the top 10 is when there's kind of the, the best plays and these uh, amazing moments in sports. But then on Fridays they have something called the not so top 10, right? And on Fridays the not so top 10 is the bloopers, the errors where people mess up. So what I want to do is I want to give you some things about the early church that they got right, Right? Are you with me? There's some stuff the early church got right. And then I want to give you some things that the early church actually missed. And we see this in the book, in the book of Acts. These are the not-so-positive things. So here are the positives. Everybody shout positives. They had the patience and obedience to wait for the Holy Spirit as Jesus instructed. Uh, at Pentecost, they, they experienced the miraculous. Peter preaches his first sermon, and 3,000 people come to Jesus. Daily, they devoted themselves to prayer and fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the apostles' teaching of the word. They performed miraculous signs and wonders. The Lord added to their number daily. They pooled their resources where there was no needy person among them. Uh, they practiced uh, cross-cultural competence when some widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food, and so they empowered leaders from that minority people group, and the numbers of people who came to the faith multiplied. The early church in Jerusalem got some stuff right. We should celebrate what the early church did in Jerusalem. But then they missed some stuff. There was some not so great stuff. After exponential growth, they focused inward and not outward. 
it shouldn't have been an either or. It's always supposed to be a both and. But, but think about it. Like, what would you have done if from Pastor Ryan's message last week to this week, we quadrupled in number? Like, like, what would happen if our children's ministry and our youth group uh, uh, quadrupled in number? As a matter of fact, like this past Wednesday, I think, for both the children and for us, it was our largest uh, group meeting of the year. But what, what would happen if we quadrupled? Like, you would be excited. <laughs> you would be ecstatic. You would be like, praise God. And then you'd be like, whoa, where they going to park? Where they going to sit? <laughs> Do we have enough coffee? Like, I, I don't know. Why? Because like what we do naturally, it's in our human DNA. What we do is we try to manage what the Holy Spirit is doing. So we shouldn't judge them too harshly, but it's supposed to be uh, focused outward and inward. And then they didn't leave Jerusalem. They stayed in one general geographical location. They had a singular focus on Jews. They focused on one group of people. They, they were skeptical when people shared the gospel with Gentiles. They do it with Peter. They, they cross-examined him like he was in a courtroom. But then the last one, and probably the most egregious one, is they did not affirm Paul's calling. Watch what it says in Acts verse 9, verse 26, or chapter 9, verse 26, after Paul's conversion. It says, when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but, when, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was really a disciple. They felt like Paul's past, which was a pretty sketchy past. Say, man, he killed Christians, right? He prosecuted Christians. They felt like Paul's past disqualified him. And they did not trust him. They gave up on Paul far too soon. And we must be careful not to ignore people because they don't fit our mold or our style or our method of doing things. We may be missing the answer to prayer that God has sent us if we do not see everyone. Somebody shout, everyone. The Bible says all, if we don't see everyone as having value. And so Barnabas, Barnabas steps in. He starts to vouch for Paul. He sees what others don't see yet. But we don't hear much about Paul after uh, Acts 9 until around Acts 11, which is what we're going to talk about in just a moment. Now, I'm not saying, I'm certainly not saying that the early church in Jerusalem was a failure. I'm not saying that at all. But it seems they missed part of Jesus' message and their intended mission. And the truth is, we can too. Jesus is teaching challenge them. And if we're honest, Jesus' teaching challenges us. Following Jesus is very countercultural. I mean, the last will be first. I mean, love your enemies. Come on, that's, the, that's a real hard one. Come on, say amen. amen. Like, 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 the last will be first. The greatest among you will be those who serve, like turn your other cheek when people prosecute you. I mean, it is an upside-down kingdom. And as disciples, let me say this, because sometimes our comforts get in the way. So let me say this. Don't let our church be a cul-de-sac on God's Great Commission Highway. Don't let our church be a cul-de-sac. Um, my daughter, my oldest daughter is 28. Um, some of you know we have a grandbaby that's 19 months. And so for about five years, of her, for about nine years of her life, I was a single father. Uh, this was before I recommitted my life to Christ. Um, and what I love about um, this exchange was there was something that happened that, that she didn't really understand, but it took some time for her to get it. Uh, she had never really seen me spend a lot of time with another woman because I decided not to do that until I knew that I was going to be marrying my wife. 
And so finally I meet Nicole and I introduce her to Nicole, but, but there became a problem because for her, initially, it felt like letting Nicole in was pushing her out. And, and, and what I had to help her to understand is, no, no baby, that's not, how, that's not how this works. Our hearts have room for more. Like, just because we let somebody in doesn't necessarily mean we push someone else out. Like, you are not being replaced. Your mom is not being replaced. I'm letting Nicole in because of love. And, and what's going to happen in this loving relationship and this new family that is forming, like, it's actually going to be for your benefit and not your detriment. But it took her a while before she could see that. But then there were these moments when she realized someone was going to love her unconditionally another person, that she began to articulate that this was actually something that was positive and not negative. That, that now having another, uh, another mom in her life that loved her through her different situations was, was something that, that she didn't have to have a scarcity mentality. It, 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 it's not giving up one to get the other. It's actually a both and. Come on, somebody say amen. Like, like I think sometimes what we do in these conversations is we think, like, I'm going to lose out if I don't get this, and, and, and you're going to win, and I'm going to lose. And the reality is, no, our hearts have room for more. What Jesus was trying to help the Pharisees understand and the early church to understand our hearts have room for more. Don't throw out the Gentiles. Don't throw out people who don't follow the ways you used to. Our hearts have room for more. This message is for all. This message is for everyone. Our hearts have room for more. I, I don't know who I'm speaking to. Um. I did one of my first weddings here in Greensboro, and uh, matter of fact, the couple that I did this wedding with, I saw them yesterday at homecoming at Guilford College. Uh, so I worked at Guilford College for about nine years after I went to school there for four. And uh, these were two of my students that were part, they were interns in my office, and so they asked me to do their premarital, they asked me to do their wedding. Uh, he's Ghanaian, uh, and so uh, his family flew in from Ghana. Uh, she's uh, a U.S. citizen but has Irish roots. And so it was this beautiful wedding uh, about culture and love. And so we're outside at Guilford College. We're, we're doing the wedding by a lake. It's a beautiful, I don't know if the picture is up where you can see it. But, but, but we're at the lake, and, and we're having uh, this wedding. And uh, that's a picture of, of the two of us with Nicole. And his, his family's got on their kente cloth, you know what I'm saying? I mean, they, they drumming with the djembe. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful scenery. Uh, she's coming in with her Irish garb and, and cloth, and, and, and they're playing the Irish flute. And, and, and I'm watching her come down the aisle. I'm so excited for her. I'm looking at him. I'm so proud of him. And then all of a sudden, a gnat flies in my ear. And I went from this beautiful sound and scenery to... And she's coming down the aisle, and I'm doing... And she's looking at me like, you all right? And he's like, bro, you good? And it took me a while to get in there and get, get the gnat out. But what am, what am I saying this? Because if I'm honest, like we've, we've gotten almost through this message. And for some people, there have been words that I've said or things that you've had to deal with in your past that sometimes can be like that gnat, that it can, it can be so irritated and nagging that you can't even hear what's really going on because that gnat has, has completely taken you out of the space. And so I want to say to you, if you have that gnat, if you have that obstacle, just ask the Holy Spirit to help you get in there like I got in there. Come on, say amen, and get that thing out. Because here are some of the obstacles. Here are some of the challenges. It's sometimes awkward, 
right? It's extremely uncomfortable. It's weird at times. You start to say questions like, where do I begin? Like, what do we do if I disagree with somebody? Like, I don't want to be called a racist, or I'm tired of always having to explain myself and defend my experience. Uh, another challenge is there's the danger of a single story, right? Like, no one, uh, no group of people is monolithic. We all have different views and experience, and we must be willing to learn from each other. The other thing is that, watch this, you and I, if we really do this work well, like if you are part of one church and, and you stick with it, you got a 100% chance, not, not 90, not 80, you got a 100% chance that eventually you're going to offend somebody, Amen. eventually you're going to be offended. 100% chance. I mean, 100%. Like, live with a family long enough. Be married long enough. Eventually, you're going to say something <laughs> or you're going to do something that's offensive, all right? And, and, and somebody's going to do something to you. So you got a 100% chance. Like, we, we have to build trust. Uh, our, our relationship has to be bigger than the offense. Like, there must be trust over tension. We must grow to have big relationships. I believe that sometimes the conflict is actually a means of grace where God takes us under the surface and we begin to build things we couldn't do before. And then the last thing, the obstacle, is it brings up shame and or pain. And if it does, we have to name those things. Conviction is of the Holy Spirit, but shame is not from God. Brene Brown helps us to understand that guilt is a feeling that we have when we've done something bad, but shame is something that happens when we think we're something bad. Shame is not from God, and that should never be our approach. So God allows persecution to break out in Acts 8 to move the church in Jerusalem beyond themselves. And watch this now. Now we get to Acts 11 where we begin to close this thing out. Acts 11 verse 19, and I'm reading from the NIV. It says, now. Somebody shout, now. now. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Somebody shout, Antioch. Antioch. Spreading the word only among Jews. Mm, some people have still had a gnat in their ear. Some still didn't get it. Verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Watch this. Verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them, and what? And a great number. That, that doesn't sound like adding. That sounds like multiplying. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Thank God for Barnabas. Verse 24, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith, watch it, here's it in, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Now, watch, watch what happens next, because I think it's really important. Verse 25, then Barnabas went to Tarsus. Wait a minute. I thought they sent you from Jerusalem. Why are you going to Tarsus? I'll tell you why. To look for Saul. He didn't go back to Jerusalem to give his report. And the Bible says here at the end of uh, verse 26, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Why did he do that? Barnabas knew he needed a high-capacity person to give leadership to this emerging multi-ethnic church in Antioch. Paul's unique blend of Jewish blood and Roman citizenship gave him insights to minister to people in the marketplace. And then it says this, so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples, watch this, were first called Christians at Jerusalem? 
Antioch. Being multi-ethnic helped them to be more credible, a more credible witness of this wall-destroying gospel they were proclaiming. Now, you may ask, is there room for ethnic or language-specific ministries? Absolutely. We saw that last week with our Korean brothers and sisters led by Pastor Sit Lin. People sometimes need the gospel shared in their heart language or sometimes in cultural realities that are more familiar to them. Another example is I spent 35 years of my life in the black church. I owe so much of who I am to the black church. Many of you have been transformed by God and grown in your faith while at mono-ethnic churches. This message uh, and our mission is never, ever to devalue them. Never. But it is to communicate that Jesus' message was always about something more. We never want to completely separate people out. Our goal is to develop relationships and many ministry opportunities that bridge people into a unified work where we can all become one. Now, remember, remember, because some of you are like, well, give me some examples. Now, remember, because of the culture and the context that Jesus was born into, he started with the ethnic-specific and a gender-specific discipleship model. Twelve Jewish young men. Most of them were teenagers, but it didn't stop there. It evolved from the 12 to the 72, from the 72 to the 144. He shifts people's thinking when he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. He shifts people's thinking when he talks to the Syrophoenician woman about the crumbs that fall from the master's table. I'm trying to preach this. Somebody help me. Uh, He shifts people's thinking when he helps them to understand that children have value in his kingdom. They're not to be left to the side. They need to be in the front row seat. By the time Jesus gives the great commission and ascends into heaven, he leaves behind disciples who are men and women, who are clergy and lay, who are young and old, who are poor and wealthy, who are Jew and Gentile. He breaks the rules and he pushes back against traditions and rituals when they don't value people. He models this, seeking, serving, and sending. A church in Cincinnati that um, I'm close friends with the pastor, they do something, uh, they did something for a number of years. Now it's so much a part of their DNA, they don't talk about it anymore. But I think it's worth mentioning in this context. Um, I went to their church and, uh, years ago, and, and they would say this almost like uh, two or three times during a service. They, they would talk about this 80-20 rule. And, um, and, and then they would say, like, when you come to our church, you're going to probably... Um, enjoy and value about 80% of what we do. And I'm like, 80? Like, why 80? Why not 100? And then they said, what we want you to understand is um, the 20 that you're not connecting with or doesn't really make sense to you, or maybe, maybe it's a song you don't know, or maybe it's a language you don't speak, that 20% is a part of somebody else's 80%. Oh, is anybody getting this? And what we want is for your 80 to become 85. 
You're 85 to become 90. And I heard somebody say this, uh, I think it was Becca, uh, some time ago talking about like now, like sometimes she can, she can recite or sing in Spanish because of the value we have of singing in other languages because there's that sense in which you begin to value and appreciate what somebody else's uh, experience is like. And so now we begin to see that this is all about us. It's not about me. And maybe there are moments, like, come on, say amen. Like last week, for some of y'all, it was rough. Can I be honest? Because we're not used to that. Like, we're not used to translation. We're, we're not used to hearing songs sung that we don't know completely. Like, we're not used to that. But what Pastor Ryan was doing is he was taking a risk in trying to communicate not just with his words, but with actions as a leader. We are one. There's some things we should do together. And some of us, like, we, we trying to ride the bike. <laughs> Come on, Pastor Ryan. Can you... Maybe, Maybe you should have done that on a Wednesday night. And, and I'm here to tell you, like, I'm glad he did it because it, it communicates the disruptive message that sometimes we can be all, we can be so much about us that we miss the fact that there are people right in front of us that we should be doing this with. So why, why did the church at Antioch care so much about the world? Because it already reflected the world. Contextually, Antioch was a city that sat between the east and the west. It was the third largest city only behind Alexandria and Rome. Uh, many Jews fled there from Jerusalem when they were persecuted. But it was also a place where, where Gentiles and people traveled to do business. So, so they would eventually return home from all over the world. And so it became this perfect launching pad where God would use to start this Jesus movement. And people would hear about Jesus and they would go back and share it with others. So this last shift... And then I'm going to need some help with this table. The last shift is moving from silence and inaction to personal and community transformation. This Saturday, October 15th, we'll have our Walk for Freedom, which is part of our work to stop human trafficking in the triad. And as a church, we simply want to not just say that we want to end this injustice with our lips, but we want to actually do it with our feet. Amen? So if you'll bring out the table, and um, Trinity, if you'll join me, um, I, I want to show you something that I think is important. Because some of you, like, you want practical steps, right? Like, okay, I've heard the word, I believe this, I trust this, so let me give you practical steps. One is, let God's word be your filter. Don't, don't just let your feelings be your filter. Let God's word be your filter. Number two, like, expand your table. Like, you eat at least around 21 times a week. Like, expand your table. Use differences as a doorway to dialogue. Um, and then let God's love lead the way. And lastly, trust the Holy Spirit to do the heavy lifting. Now, what I want you to do, Trinity, is how many of you have ever heard of a, some people call it a emulsifier or emulsifier. If you'll just pour that water in there. Yeah, uh, about halfway. Until uh, it gets about halfway to three-fourths way. Um, Tony Evans did this illustration years ago, and it's, it's helped me. I, I hope it helps you. Um, there's some things chemically that just don't mix. Amen? It just don't mix. Um, two of those are oil and water. So if you'll get the oil and pour, you know, about, yeah, so it's about halfway. Um, we know that oil and water 
they don't mix. Um, some of us, you know, Duke and Carolina. Y'all ain't saying amen. <laughs> it just, it, it just feels like it just, come on, are you with me? Like, I, I'm being a little facetious, but, but the reality is, if we're honest, there's some things in our lives and other people's lives, it just feels like it doesn't mix. It, it, I, I can't make this work. And the reality is, like, Trinity, if you'll just stir that up a little bit. Like, no matter how hard um, Trinity stirs this, the oil is not going to mix with the water. What it needs is it needs an emulsifier. It needs an emulsifier to get in there and begin to mix it. So, so we got a little bit of um, mayonnaise here. Mayonnaise is an emulsifier. And, and what, what happens when she squirts this mayonnaise in the water is initially it's going to look exactly like it did before, right? Because just adding, just adding the mayonnaise doesn't change the composition of the water and the oil. But when she starts to stir it, go ahead and stir that thing up. When she starts to stir up, somebody say stir it up, stir it up, stir it up. Stir it up real good, Trini. Stir it up real good. What, so, some of you, your salad dressing is simply an emulsifier. It's a mixture of different elements put together. And when you start to mix those things together, what couldn't mix actually now becomes one thing. It's not two things. It's not three things. It's one thing. And, so let me give you this last story, and I'm done. So my first time preaching at my church in Detroit, uh, I preached this message about Paul and how his life was transformed. And I end the message, and at the end of the message, we're having kind of the altar call. And there's this guy, this, this older white gentleman, who's at the front, and he's like yelling. But because there's music playing and, and we're in worship, like I'm trying to hear what he's saying, but I can't, I can't make it out. Two of our pastors go over. Uh, one is from Egypt and the other uh, was from the U.S. He, they go over and they begin to pray with this brother. He, he, his loud sounds start to calm down a little bit. and I can see the tears streaming down his face. And so we pray. I go to my seat. And, and when I get to my seat, he comes back up and he, he sits something on the altar and he goes back to his seat. And I'm trying to figure out, what did he put on the altar? Like, what was that? After the service, my Egyptian pastor, who was the chair of our board, comes over to me. He says, you got to talk to this guy that we were praying with. And I was like, tell me the story. He's like, I'm not going to tell you. He's got to tell you. And around that time, this guy comes up, and he, like, bear hugs me. I mean, he just bear hugs me. And he says, he looks at me, he looks at me in the eyes. His tears are still streaming down his face. And he says, I can't believe this happened. I was like, what? He said, a Middle Eastern man, he didn't realize the guy was Egyptian in Northern Africa, but that's, a, that's a semantics. He said, he said, a Middle Eastern man and another man led me to Christ, but now my pastor is a black man. And I'm like, there's got to be a story. Like, where is this going, bro? <laughs> I said, well, tell me what that thing was you put on the altar. He said, it was a ring from the Aryan nation that my father gave me when I made the transition into the group. And I said, what were you yelling? He said, they lied to me. They lied to me. They lied to me. I can love these people. These people love me. And, and 
what I want you to understand. What, what Will knew is that like this, this separate, this, this thing that it felt like could never mix, this, this thing that Trinity is helping us to see, like we, we can become one. This guy, I, I've discipled him for about eight months every Thursday for about an hour and a half, for eight months. Will, his name is Will. Will has now gone on to lead, lead other people to Jesus. Will is, is contemplating and trying to think, think through how and when will he go back and begin to share what has happened with his family. He's not feeling led to do so right now because it could cost him his life. But he's navigating that season because he knows eventually God is going to send him back. He's just not ready to do so yet. And so he's leading people to Christ in the Detroit area. Why? Because the two are to become one. And what looks like it can't mix, can mix. And what God wants to do in one church is to bring us together so that we can reach the lost and hurting people in High Point and the Triad and beyond. We can do this. We can do this. We are to live sin to different groups of people with a clear mission and message. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. If you study closely that oneness that we see in John 17, that oneness we see in Ephesians chapter 4, that one spirit, that one uh, Lord, that one faith, that one baptism, that it's that thing that as it happens, it was the first time in, in the history of the world that these two groups of men and women, that these groups of uh, uh, poor and rich, these groups of Jew and Gentile were coming together. And so as you stand all over the building, I want to I challenge you. I, I know sometimes it's going to be hard. I, I know at, at moments you're going to have frustration and discomfort, but I want to challenge you, don't give up on Jesus's last words. They are transformative they are not just to transform your life, but they're to transform others, and they're to transform this community. Jesus' last words have power. They have purpose, and it is what our mission embodies, to seek, to serve, and to sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this time in your word. God, I know that sometimes in these situations we feel like there are gnats and ears, and there's a lot going on. A lot going on outside of us, a lot going on inside of us. But would you make us that kind of church where the Holy Spirit, where love, where grace becomes the emancifier? The thing where the two can't seem to jail, but because of your love, we can come together. The two don't seem to jail, but because of your grace, we can come together. The, the two don't seem to jail, but because of the forgiveness that exists in our lives, we can extend that uh, forgiveness to others, that we have an emancifier, and that is you, the Holy Spirit working in and through us to be where we can't be on our own. Yeah. So we thank you, we trust you, and we commend all of this to the power of your grace. In Jesus' name, let the people of God say Thank you for listening to audio from One Church. If you made a decision of any kind today or would like to learn more about what your next step is, visit onechurchnc.net. If you are local to our campus, claim your visit online at onechurchnc.net slash visit.